Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the article from Theory to Bedside, Implementation of Fluid Stewardship in a Medical ICU Pharmacy Practice, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests today are Dr. William Anthony Hawkins, Clinical Associate Professor, Clinical and Administrative Pharmacy, University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. Dr. Charles Wilson, a PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at Wesley Medical Center, and Dr. Michael Long, a PGY2 emergency medicine pharmacy resident at Indiana University Health. Not joining us today, but the senior author on this paper was Dr. Susan E. Smith, clinical associate professor, clinical and administrative pharmacy, University of Georgia College of Pharmacy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to AJHP Voices. Hey, good morning, Dan. Thanks for having us. Good morning. I want to start off, Michael and CJ, with you. You became involved in this study as pharmacy students. And I'm sort of interested, just to start, how you became involved in a clinical study in the ICU setting as, as students. So whoever wants to jump in first, CJ, Michael? Yeah, so I actually got introduced to ICU pharmacy taking an elective course with Dr. Hawkins and Smith. So that piqued my interest and I reached out to Anthony and asked for additional opportunities that we could work together and expand my knowledge. We came up with this idea and I was involved from the beginning and helping with data collection and seeing it through. Got it. Michael, what about you? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Originally, I was not planning on doing a residency. I was working at a long-term care pharmacy throughout school. And then I had a emergency medicine pharmacy rotation during my IPVEs and then really got interested in that area and knew that I was going to have to do a residency. So I went to Anthony's office one day and was like, hey, look, like, are there any opportunities to get involved in and how can I kind of get involved with the ICU study. And luckily this was, this was getting fired up. And like CJ, I was involved from the start doing data collection and kind of saw it through as well. That's fantastic. Anthony, has this been something that's sort of been a common approach for you? Have you regularly engaged students and residents in your research? Yeah, I definitely try to always give opportunities to students and residents. I think I can support and encourage them through the process and they and their productivity definitely makes me look better. So it's definitely a win-win situation. The UGA Critical Care Collaborative or UGA C3, Susan and I and three other faculty members, we kind of join forces across four campuses and we have research electives and critical care electives in the second and third year for pharmacy students. And that kind of sets a pipeline for students that are interested in critical care and emergency medicine and gives them an opportunity to get involved in research as their as third and fourth year students. Michael's example is actually one of my favorites. I, the email that he initially sent me that said, oh, I'm in a pickle right now and I really want to do a residency. Can we meet and kind of talk about a game plan moving forward? I share that email with the first year students when I teach them actually just earlier this week. 
to really set them up for that, to say, you actually don't really know what you want to do yet. Please don't keep tunnel vision, you know, utilize faculty and, and mentors to really set yourself up for success for whatever that path will eventually look like. It's a great example and a great model. And Michael, I'm sure you don't mind being used as a case study. I'm interested to talk with you today because, as I mentioned when we were preparing, my own practice goes back to practice in the emergency department and the critical care setting, specifically the medical ICU, and as a pharmacist clinical toxicologist and caring for poison patients in those settings. And these issues of fluid balance were certainly always front and center with the patient population that I was involved with. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you this morning. So Anthony, you start off the article by saying that, you know, much uncertainty surrounds fluid use in the ICU. Why is that? I think it's one of those old age old traditions where it's something we always done. So we just continue to do so. Fluids, I think initially have never been respected or regarded as actual medications. And so I don't think they were ever given the justice in research early on to really be addressed to that standard. We talk about the ICU. I think it's important to know that a lot of folks that come to the ICU may come directly from the emergency department. I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, a lot of the even the guidelines that direct like resuscitation for sepsis and DKA, the initial studies that, you know, looked at volume resuscitation for sepsis were back in early 2000. And it was kind of just a chosen number. It wasn't really any evidence based. There was no dose finding study. You know, the DKA guidelines are 20 years old and we don't really know what we're doing now with regard to new guideline therapy, et cetera. I believe it's the NICE guidelines out of the UK. There's a nice excerpt in there that says, you know, maintenance IV fluids are often used, but there's very rarely ever an, a reason to use them. There's no evidence to support their use in most disease states. So I think it's just one of those things that we're, we're so accustomed to seeing and we're not trained to evaluate them with the same rigor that we do other medications. So interesting, that passing reference that you actually do see frequently to maintenance fluids and then moving on pretty quickly. So CJ, we understand what fluid use and Anthony just spoke about that, but what is fluid stewardship? We hear a lot about opioid stewardship, antimicrobial stewardship, but in the context of fluids, what does fluid stewardship, what really is that composed of? Yeah, so you mentioned opioid stewardship and antibiotic stewardship. It's very similar to those ideals where we really take this approach of scrutinizing every fluid order that we see and really evaluating whether or not it has a true purpose, figuring out what's correct for our patient and making sure that we're intentional with the fluids that we're giving them and not just letting them ride on again, like Anthony said, just because that's how it's always been done, but truly being intentional with our choice of fluids and duration of those fluids as well. And then in the manuscript, you talk about the role of the four rights as well as the ROSE model in fluid stewardship. Where do those come into play in, in the process? Yeah, so the four rights are something that as we as pharmacists do day in and day out, usually without even thinking about it. But it's a helpful tool in fluid stewardship specifically for us to really evaluate our fluid choices and making sure that we are being intentional with our decision making making sure that we are focusing on the patient, ensuring that we're using an appropriate route and fluid choice. The ROSE model is a, an idea that 
we focus on the rescue phase, optimization phase, stabilization phase, and evacuation phase. This helps us pay attention to the fluids in a more longitudinal fashion and really focus on avoiding things like negative fluid balance and overly positive fluid balance as well. You talk about at the beginning of the paper, you spend some time talking about positive and negative fluid balances and the risks associated with those. What, what are some of those risks? Positive fluid balance has been shown, you know, to increase the time of mechanical ventilation. It's been associated with mortality and morbidity. So it's truly something that often gets forgotten and and is super important in our um, role as fluid stewards. Negative fluid balance, on the other hand, can lead to end organ dysfunction, causing longer hospitalizations, increased medication therapy needs. So really focusing on maintaining a neutral fluid balance and really being, again, intentional with our decisions regarding fluids. So with all of that as background, let's start to talk about the study. And Michael, what was the primary aim of this study? The primary goal of this study was to characterize the pharmacist's role in fluid stewardship practice and also provide a construct for implementation of services related to fluid stewardship You know, there's been several previous reports that discuss fluid stewardship and its importance, really. But this paper outlines how that can actually be implemented. And I think the title does a great job of, you know, saying from theory to bedside and how we can actually implement that. So, Michael, tell us about the methods that you use to approach this study. Yeah, so this was a retrospective study, which included medical ICU patients that were followed by the academic pharmacy team if there was documentation in the electronic clinical surveillance program. We reviewed all recommendations made by the team member and then took the number of recommendations that were related to fluid stewardship and categorized them based on the four rights of fluid stewardship and the ROSE model that we've talked about. Fluid stewardship recommendations and their categorization within the two constructs were determined prior to data collection. We looked at recommendations based on each patient day, and that was defined as the day that the patient was rounded on by the pharmacy team. Two reviewers were assigned to each patient day to assess the recommendations, and if there were any discrepancies or disagreements on the number of recommendations or even the type of recommendation, an extra reviewer was assigned and it was examined again. And this was continued until there was a majority agreement for the recommendation. And we used descriptive statistics for the data analysis. Great. Thanks, Michael. And so, Anthony, moving from that data analysis into what you actually found, what were the findings of the study? Yeah, so over that two-year span of reviewing the electronic surveillance tool, we specifically use Theradoc at the institution for those listeners that are you know more familiar. We evaluated, ended up looking at 305 total patients, and over those patients, it, it encompassed a total of over 900 patient days. And from those 900 patient days, we actually got around 2,600 pharmacist recommendations from the pharmacy team. So we looked at, of those 2,600 pharmacy recommendations that were reviewed, again, kind of like Michael described, almost 20%, so 19% were directly related to fluid stewardship based on some of those a priori definitions that we had created. So this came out to be an average of one and a half fluid stewardship recommendations per patient. 
And like Michael said, we categorized all of those recommendations, each pharmacy recommendation that was related to fluids. We categorized it both in the construct of the four rights and in the the ROSE model. So within the four rights, 39% of our recommendations were related to the right patient, 33% related to the right route, 17% to the right drug, and 11% related to the right dose. So then we take all of those same recommendations and then we reorganize them based on the ROSE model. And surprisingly a little bit at the beginning of you know, reviewing the results, only 1% of our recommendations were related to the rescue phase, 3% to the optimization phase, a large majority, 79% were related to the stabilization phase, and then 17% were related to the evacuation phase. So you said that 79% of the interventions related to the, the stabilization phase, what were those? Can you talk a bit more about the nature of those recommendations? That's a great question. And I think the percentage breakdown based on the ROSE model is pretty much in alignment with where a patient stays during their phases of critical illness while in the ICU. And so a majority of their time in the ICU, hopefully at least, they're going to be more in the stabilization and evacuation phase. And that's what our data kind of represented. But specifically talking about the stabilization phase, we talk about IV to PO conversion. And I know we'll talk a little bit more later about, you know, the impact of IV to PO related to hidden or discrete fluid administration that we don't necessarily always account for. Stopping maintenance IV fluids, like we alluded to earlier, again, very rarely there's ever evidence that maintenance fluids at 100 an hour or any set rate actually provides any stability to a patient other than a stable weight gain over their ICU stay. Anthony, when you look at the work, what were some of the limitations of the approach that you used? Sure. I think, you know, it's always good to give credit where credit is due. I think, you know, a lot of our research team were very diligent up front, again, trying to list out and categorize as many of the pharmacy recommendations related to fluids or fluid stewardship as we could, which included diuretic use, you know, as it does target fluid balance, not necessarily the drug fluids. But I think there are some inherent limitations to that one. I mean, that was a list of recommendations created by our study team. We did self-categorize those. So certainly there could be some that, you know, some listeners, um, reviewers disagree with. We did have, you know, in terms of the peer review process, we did recategorize a couple of those. I think there are a couple different recommendations that we specifically use that depending on what perspective you wanted to use or what lens you wanted to view them through, you could classify it in maybe one or two different ways. We only chose one, so to not double dip with a recommendation. And then lastly, I think probably one of the more important ones that your listeners and the reviewers have identified is that these are all recommendations that were made. So a follow-up to this study will be, you know, the acceptance rate because recommendations are, can only do so much. It's a matter of getting those recommendations accepted. And then you, you know, convert those now from recommendations to interventions. And so what percent were actually accepted? And then more notably, what impact did that have on patient care outcomes? And so that'll be the phase two and phase three of this project moving forward. It's exciting to hear that there are subsequent studies that are going to occur. And you mentioned that acceptance is next on the list, but even before you complete that study, I'm sort of interested to know how your physician colleagues in the ICU have received the, maybe in more qualitative terms, how they've reacted 
connected to the pharmacist's stewardship of fluids and their overall take on the findings of the study? That's a great question. Sometimes it's a little bit more challenging to make some of these recommendations to teams to get them accepted. It's a lot easier when you have a recommendation that you have evidence to support its use or misuse or to you know discontinue therapy. Again, related to fluids or maintenance fluids or resuscitation fluids, et cetera, the fluid dose and the duration is something that is very rarely, if not ever, actually studied. And so on rounds, it's, it's really hard for me to convince them or provide evidence to say maintenance fluids are bad because there's no evidence to suggest that. But likewise, there's no evidence to suggest maintenance fluids are good. And so instead, I have to take a different approach. I say I, you know, certainly all members of the team make recommendations that really focus on the outcomes of the patient's fluid balance, kind of what CJ referenced earlier and all the negative outcomes of a non-uvolemic state, whether that's hyper or hypovolemic. And so we target some of those things. I think sometimes we have to be a little bit more type A detail oriented. As pharmacists, it's probably a little bit more natural for us. But sometimes I think, you know, the points that we have to make, if they're on some sort of maintenance fluids, we can go back and look at all of the other discrete fluids that they're getting and use that as a counterpoint to say, well, they're already getting all of the fluids that you would like them to get. It's just hidden that you're not necessarily directly accounting for. Got it. In the actual article, table two provides just this pretty extensive discussion of stages of implementation. Can you talk through those a bit? In the article, it's titled unit level tips for successful implementation. Sure. So in terms of implementing fluid stewardship practice, I think there are three different levels that you have to get buy-in or you have to practice, I guess. The first level is, is at the patient level. And so that's kind of what we have captured here where we are on rounds as a patient advocate and we are doing patient level fluid stewardship practice. And that happens every day at the bedside and individually with an N of one each time. Second level would be unit level, as you mentioned, which table two in the paper describes a little bit better. And that is more, you know, if we're talking about our medical ICU that we captured these patients in, that's trying to get the entire medical ICU team on board with fluid stewardship practice. And there are some things, you know, that may be a little bit more obvious, like educating the team. You know, I think on rounds, I may recommend to not use lactated ringers or to change the D5LR to D5 or maybe even just to D10 based on what our goals of therapy are. And a lot of times the nurses will ask after rounds, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about why you did that? And I think taking that time just, again, individually, you know, in a slow and steady way to educate your entire unit on the different things that, that we're doing and bringing to the patient's care really gets them more educated. And then when I'm not on service or one of the other pharmacists that practice, you know, a little bit more intuitively um, or, in, you know, carefully related to fluids, the nurses can still be patient advocates related to that fluid balance. I think you know, other things you can do on the unit level it sounds a little bit silly, but is, you know, go look in the stock room at what type of fluids that you have and what size bag of fluids that you have, because you may realize that the reason fluid stewardship is difficult to practice in your unit is because you don't have, you're setting yourself up for failure. When, if you look in your stock room, the only thing you have are one liter bags of normal saline. 
right? And I don't even like the term normal saline. I'll call it isotonic salt water. You know, because if you really want to start using smaller bags like 250 or 500 ml bags of LR, and you don't have any 250 ml bags of any fluid in your unit, that's going to be very difficult to implement. And so I think looking at the stock room, looking at the opportunities and what you already have made easily available to your staff and your unit, I think is one easy place to look at. So we've talked about patient level, some a couple examples of unit level, and then institution level. I think institution level, you know, we're talking about fluid stewardship and broadening pharmacy practice and what you do at the bedside. Part of what we do is we go in the room and we look at the patient's arterial line, the waveform, and assess pulse pressure variation, or we'll go in and manually do a passive leg raise. And as a pharmacist, that takes time. And so I think as a health system, if we plan to be successful as pharmacists and promote our profession and doing more of these things, we need more buy-in and support from higher level administration. I know Dr. Sakura, Dr. Smith, Dr. Brian Murray out of North Carolina, they've done a, some recent work looking at pharmacist to patient ratios in the ICU and what really promotes safe and appropriate, adequate critical care level pharmacy interventional care. And so I think, you know, the more responsibility that we put on ourselves as, as a profession, we also have to support ourselves and say, you know, you got to give me less patience and more time to do the things if I'm going to be more involved in this way. So those types of things on a more institutional level for support and kind of support to alter your workflow and integrate some of these practices into your daily pharmacy staffing models. So. CJ and Michael, with this in mind, in terms of the different approaches that you have to take at the patient level, the unit level, the institutional level in hospital, or maybe across multiple hospitals in a health system, how do you envision your work being used by pharmacists in other critical care settings? CJ, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think our article paints a good picture for where to start based off of where you currently are in your institution. So as a student, I was in a different place with fluid stewardship as I am in my institution currently as a resident. We have different policies in place and we have different practices that we go off of. So really taking a look at this work and, and seeing where you are in your personal practice and using that as kind of a basis for how to further our practice as a unit or as an institution. But again, always going back to the patient. The patient should be the, the center of all of our decisions. So this can be used from any area of critical care or even not critical care pharmacy, really evaluating our patients and our patients' needs in order to ensure that we are providing the best care for them. Michael, what would you add? I agree with CJ. I think with me being in the emergency department primarily, and this study taking place in a medical ICU, I think there's definitely room with such few interventions being rescue and optimization phase in this study particularly. I think there's definitely room to look into that more because we know that those two phases collectively make up resuscitation, which is usually complete by the time the patient is transferred to the ICU. So I think there's definitely more room that can go into looking into that, uh, but also like taken away from this article, knowing that what is down the line and what, you know, the colleagues in the ICU are going to have to do down the line kind of drives my decisions up front. I know that I have max concentrated drips before, knowing that 
that's going to be continued in the ICU. And that could save, I mean, that could save the patient liters of fluid down the line. So just being cognizant of what has started in the ED is usually continued in the ICU and, and trying to make the work less for my colleagues, you know, down the line to really optimize the patient's fluid status. Michael, it seems to me that there's an obvious additional dimension to this that I'd like to tease out a bit with you as well. And Anthony or CJ, please jump in on this too. But for that critically ill patient that arrives in the ED, it seems to me that there are implications in the out-of-hospital setting as well. And when there's care provided by paramedics in the field, does fluid stewardship actually need to start even earlier in the out-of-hospital setting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, taking into account, you know, how many liters of fluid has this patient already gotten? Like, are they fluid responsive? You know, a lot of times in the ED, we don't have hemodynamic monitoring set up. So doing your passive leg raises, really doing fluid challenges, doing small aliquots instead of, you know, giving, oh, let's just give this patient two liters. Like, do they really need that? Let's start off with a smaller volume, 250, maybe 500 and see how they respond. You know, when patients are transferred, I know I've made interventions before that, you know, they're hypotensive and that they've already gotten maybe three, four liters at the outside hospital, really pressing providers to, you know, just see, is this patient fluid responsive? And how can we evaluate that before we just start slamming fluid in the people? Got it. Anthony, what would you add to that? I think this is a great area for research, really kind of, again, going back to fluids just aren't really studied. I think this is an area where transitions of care, I think Michael did a good job describing some of that. I think one of the big pieces is just terrible documentation. If the pre-hospital care wants to get involved with some fluid stewardship or any type of medical management, I think we just need a better process for documenting what that is so that we are better informed when they finally arrive to our facilities. They've done some studies looking at pre-hospital care with, you know, giving fluid to sepsis or suspected sepsis patients pre-hospitalization, and it hasn't shown much of a benefit. But I think that's maybe not so much of pre-hospital fluid stewardship, but more about do we even know that fluids is the right first answer for a septic patient? Even in, you know, Michael talks about the resuscitation, the rescue and optimization phases in the ER. There have been studies and pretty namely ones in the New England Journal looking at early sepsis bundles and early timely sepsis bundle improves outcomes. But if you break it down into each component, every individual component improved outcomes except fluid boluses. So again, I think it just really sends us back to, we really don't know what we're doing. We're just doing what has been done and we're studying an antiquated practice rather than questioning what part of that practice is actually evidence-based that we can actually do and evaluate and support. So as I think about everything I've heard this morning, it seems to me that there's a real opportunity for clinical pharmacy engagement and leadership in fluid stewardship across the continuum of care. If it may be beginning in the out-of-hospital setting, the emergency department, the critical care setting, and even in the more general medical surgical settings. Anthony, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of opportunity there, both to take what we've done a little bit. And I think CJ mentioned this earlier. I think this paper is a great starting point for all the listeners. We have a really nice table in the paper that 
list out every single pharmacy recommendation that we evaluated. And so even if you're not very keen on fluid stewardship or the types of fluid stewardship recommendations, we have a good list of things that you can just start looking for right now. I think as we talk about generalizability, again, going back, reinforcing that transitions of care component, really spending some time with your hospital protocols and all the different protocols and things that you already have in place, it reevaluate those in terms of what they promote with regard to your fluids. You may see that a lot of your protocols don't have lactated ringers or other balanced crystalloids, even as an option for resuscitation fluids, potentially. Transition from the ER to the ICU, like again, practice models. Do you have a pharmacist in your ER that is already doing some of those things and a critical care pharmacist to help with that transition? Do your providers that are triaging, do they help patients transition from the ER to the ICU or to the floor very well and kind of capturing some of those things? I think the more literature, the more research that's done in the evacuation phase, I think there's a lot of opportunity for pharmacist involvement in diuresis, either in the ICU or even as they transition from the ICU to the floor or maybe back to an LTAC potentially. I think CJ mentioned a good point, like what is your patient population outside of the ICU? You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen patients on the cardiac floor that are on a salt restricted diet, but they're getting salt water infused at 125 mLs an hour. I'd much rather them eat their bacon than to get IV salt water infused, you know? So I think, again, just thinking about your patients, changing your PAR levels, you know, we don't have ceftriaxone staffed in our, or stocked in our neonatal ICU for good reason. And probably we have a lot of opportunity to change what type of things that we stock in all of our other places around the hospital, again, to really complement what the patient population is in that area. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. William Anthony Hawkins, Dr. Charles C.J. Wilson, and Dr. Michael Long for joining us today to discuss their article, From Theory to Bedside, Implementation of Fluid Stewardship in a Medical ICU Pharmacy Practice, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues, and interviews with AJHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes please visit AJHP.org.